the big thing that I think people ought to recognize is that our identities, our sources of meaning, they're they're sort of like plants. They require time and energy to grow. And one of the risks of living such a work-centric existence is that when you're off work, you often don't have the energy to do anything else. That's why so many people come home and then, you know, flip on Netflix and turn on, turn off their brain for a few hours and then go to sleep and then rinse and repeat. You know, the days become indistinguishable from one another. From the moment we ask our kids what they want to be when they grow up, we exalt the dream job as if it were life's ultimate objective. And that is the topic of today's conversation with Simone Stolzoff. He is the author of an amazing book that is so well-timed called The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. Now, one of the things that um, I feel that those of us who identify as creators, as entrepreneurs, as people who want to get the most out of life is that we often over-index on the relationship between the work that we do and our identity. And I've talked in previous shows about how difficult or challenging that can be. Today's episode, it hits different. Um, Simone is an independent journalist and a designer from San Francisco. He's a former design lead at the global innovation firm called IDEO. Um, and he regularly works with folks like the Surgeon General of the US, uh, the Chief Talent Officer at Google on how to make the workplace more human. And as an entrepreneur, his work spoke to me because so many times I felt like I was on a very lonely slog, a very difficult, hard uphill journey. And I still do to this day. So I'm always looking for things that can sort of fortify me against those feelings or help me understand those feelings and then get better at not um, falling into the trap that identity and job, how it can hold us prisoners. So today's conversation specifically just traces how work has come to dominate our lives and specifically the lives of, of those in the U.S., but it's, it is definitely a global pandemic. So many great examples in this book, and I know you're going to love our conversation today as we reflect on all this. Again, yours truly and Simone Stolzoff. Simone, we made it happen. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Chase, thanks for having me. We are about to have a very important conversation. Um, you've just come out with a new book. Uh, I understand you've been working on this for a while. And I'm wondering if before we get into that topic, if you can retrace a little bit of your history, maybe give a personal introduction so that people who might be new to your work could orient, you know, why, why you're on the show today. Why are you here? Yeah. Well, the easiest way to describe it is I'm a journalist and I wrote a book about work culture in America and sort of our fraught relationship to work here in this country. But the longer story is more interesting. So in college, I studied poetry and economics, and that set up this kind of early tension between art and commerce, probably similar to a tension you felt yourself, Chase. And yeah. I think, you know, in my 20s, I really was playing Goldilocks with careers. I worked in tech for a few years. I worked in advertising for a few years. I worked in design for a few years, all the while trying to find a vocational soulmate, trying to find a job that kind of personal 
perfectly captured my unique personality. And in many ways, the book is a reflection of that. So, you know, it's called The Good Enough Job, and it's about the value of diversifying our identity beyond just what we do for work. And so for a long time, I think I was looking for work to help me self-actualize. And the kind of result of all of that exploration is what ultimately became the book that you're holding right now. I'm holding it in PDF form <laughs> because it hasn't come out yet. We are we are ahead. Okay, I guess May 23rd, which is just next week. Um, so I do have the the benefit of getting it early, and for that, I'm very grateful. Um, but I tell you, it is a page turner or a scroller if you're reading the PDF like I am. Um, and wanting to have it's a no brainer to get you on the show because what you just said is a problem that so many of us who identify as creative, especially creative, curious, entrepreneurial um, work does become a huge piece of our identity. And as you wisely point out, that cuts both ways. So when did you realize that this was something that you needed to sort out? I'm guessing this is a massive precursor to the book, but when did you realize that this is a thing. Yeah. I mean, there's sort of two ways in. One was as the perspective of an observer. So I was writing for places like The Atlantic and Wired about sort of work culture in America and how central work had become for so many people. But the second was really personal. So um, I was working for you know a trendy online magazine in New York and a recruiter called me up from this design agency, IDEO, that I had always sort of had on the career vision board somewhere and you know I always take the call right I sort of went along with it and went through the interview process kind of passively and then I found myself at this fork in the road there was sort of the path as a journalist and the path as a designer and on on one hand you know I don't expect much sympathy you know oh the agony of having to choose between two attractive job offers but on the other hand, you know, it really sent me for a loop. It didn't feel like I was choosing between two jobs as much as it felt like I was choosing between two versions of me. And you know, maybe some of your listeners have been at a similar career crossroads, and it just felt like the stakes of what we choose to do for work were so high. I had completely conflated who I was with what I do, and you know, especially in a country like the U.S., it's exacerbated by every you know dinner party or cocktail party conversation where what do you do is the first question we ask each other. And so I wanted to explore how did we get here? How did work become so central to our identities? How did it become the sole source of meaning for so many people? And what should we make of it? Well, that makes me want to start off with, it's not the very first chapter of the book, but the religion, you call it, the, religi the religion of workism. Yeah, so it was a term that was originally coined by a colleague of mine named Derek Thompson. And the idea with workism is it's, you know, people treating work akin to a religious identity, you know, not just something that you look to for a paycheck, but something that you also look to for purpose and community and a, a reason for being in this world. And, you know, at face value, it could make sense. You know, we work more than we do just about anything else. Like looking for transcendent meaning from our jobs is one approach. But, you know, Derek and, and I in the book point out how it, as you said, can cut both ways. It can create sky high expectations about what a job can deliver. It can uh, 
neglect other aspects of who we are when we underinvest in other identities. And as so many people found out during the pandemic, if your job is your sole source of identity and meaning and you lose it or it changes in some material way, what's left? And so, you know, there are, there are, it's a double-edged sword of really looking to work as your primary means of, of self-actualization. Well, I'm going to present you with a conundrum. That's my job. This is not, not, we're not trying to throw a curveball here, but as someone who has experienced the feeling that when we work on something that we love, it, there's a certain, <clears throat> there's a certain joy and effortlessness, a flow state. And that's not to say that this work can't get hard because it often very do- it does get very difficult. And yet this sort of the passion plays into uh, more feelings of well-being. It's sort of like an, um, a, a self-reflexive. Yeah, you know, like a it, virtuous it, it, loop. Yeah, a virtuous loop. It points back to itself. And, and, um, and so there's, there are feelings of well-being, of joy, of, of elation when we succeed at a thing that we do spend so much time doing. So I want to get clear that you're not advocating that that is not a positive. But what are you advocating for specifically? Because I think you've, you've drawn some interesting distinctions here. How ought we think about it? Because that's not, you're not saying don't be passionate about what you do. Of course. Yeah, I mean, it's a fine line, right? It's super nuanced. And I think like especially people like you and I who have made careers of our passions and have been able to be lucky enough to have opportunities to get paid to do what we love, it's not necessarily healthy to run away from that either, you know? And so what what I say is that, you know, there's no problem with looking to work as a source of identity or a source of meaning, but it becomes dangerous when it is the sole source of identity or meaning in your life. And, you know, the research backs this up. It shows that people who have greater what researchers call self-complexity, which basically just means have cultivated different sides of themselves, are more resilient in the face of change. You know, this is um, probably relatable. If you are rising and falling with your professional accomplishments and your boss says something disparaging or, you know, the thing that you thought was going to publish gets pushed back a few weeks, it can have all these spillover effects on other aspects of your life if you haven't taken the time to cultivate other parts of who you are. And then also, you know, beyond the fact that I think we become more well-rounded people when we're able to invest in other sides of ourselves, it also can lead to more creativity, to, to better ideas, to have these varied interests and passions and sources of inspiration. And one of the risks of a work-centric existence is it doesn't just take our best time, but often takes our best energy too. And in order to cultivate other sides of who we are, in order to develop our relationships, get involved in our local community to cultivate hobbies and and passions, we need the energy to do so. And too often, you know, Esther Perel, the psychologist has this great line where she says, too often people bring the best of themselves to work and bring the leftovers home. And I think that's the risk. It's not necessarily looking to work as a source of passion or identity or fulfillment, but getting so sort of blinded by a desire to succeed or the desire to be productive that it actually detracts from us being able to be the best people and the best workers we can. So beautifully put. Uh, thank you for that. And and yet I want to introduce yet another conundrum, right? So when 
we are young children and we dream, or even as an adult, you re recognize that you, there's something out there that you want to go for that you maybe haven't had the courage or the patience or the willingness or the skill set or any of the, you know, the whatevers. And now you're like, it's, it's, I want to do this. And it may be natural to want to be good at that thing. Or maybe that's a part of our ego identity that's saying, if, if I'm good, I'll be liked. And if I'm not good, I won't be liked. Uh, and, and yet I think of the things in my life that I have done where I have been the best that I could be of that thing. And I'll just say photography, for example, I have a long career as a photographer. And I think that the experience that it took to get me to that place where I had mastered something was did not have balance and i i am around a lot of high performers not just through the show my peer group and friend group and a lot of people are like oh it must be so cool to you know this to this this you know olympic athlete or this chess grandmaster or some you know amazing entrepreneur and you're like actually the person's totally weird <laughs> they're totally. like they're like, you know, people who are the best in the world at something, they have become the best in the world because they have, it has completely taken over their lives. So here's the conundrum. That's one scene yeah. that I know to be true from personal experience, from looking at very closely at my friends and peer group. And when people are excellent at something, they have learned to master, say something in the way that you've mastered journalism, for example, they have then the ability, this very beautiful ability to become good at lots of things, mm -hmm. potentially including being a good, you know, wife, husband, partner, father, daughter, whatever. They understand the sort of a 360 degree picture of mastery and, and that translates. Maybe the skills don't translate directly, but the concept of how does one get good at something? What does one study? What... And, you know, in the background of all this is these are the labels that we use. I am an architect. Mm. I am a husband. I am a – and so my hope is that with these two sort of competing ideas, you got to – you know, it feels good to be great at something and you have to invest a lot of time. And, and so that's bad. It's, theoretically, it could be bad for being at the end of your life and saying, man, what did I do? I just worked – all the time and yet by working you can come to understand so much more about yourself even the personal sides of yourself like oh i i know that when things get difficult i tend to be more x and y and i'm trying to reflect on those so mm. what role in the lens that you've created um you know here with your book the good enough job the subhead is reclaiming life from work what you know, through that lens, how do you reconcile all this work talk that we have developed, especially here in the U.S., as you point out, and these sort of conflicting, I want to be good at my job and being good at one thing helps me be good at others, but we have just built this whole universe largely around work and yeah. not around being a three-dimensional human. Help, I help mean, me you've gotten straight to the heart of it, Chase. Like, that's the question of the book, right? It's how do you balance the pursuit of meaningful work without letting work subsume who you are? And it's different strokes for different folks. I'll tell you a quick anecdote. So I was a 22-year-old poetry student, 
and I had the opportunity to interview my favorite writer in the entire world, this poet. His name is Anis Mojgani. He's actually the current poet laureate of the state of Oregon. And I was expecting him to give me sort of a, a pep talk. You know, here I was like about to embark on an unknown future. And I was talking to like my idol, you know, my professional poet, no less. And so I asked him, you know, Anise, how do you feel about the phrase, do what you love and never work a day in your life? And he said something that I'll never forget. He said, you know, some people do what they love and other people do what they have to so they can do what they love when they're not working. And neither is more noble. And I think that last part is really key. I think we live in a society that loves to revere people whose identities and their work neatly aligned. You know, the photographers, the social entrepreneurs, the the painters, the astronauts. And here was, you know, a poet who makes money traveling around the world performing his words saying that it's okay to have a day job. You know, and so I think like it's a spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum, there are people who live to work. And on the other end of the spectrum, there are people that work to live. But regardless of where you sit on the spectrum, my goal with this book is to help you understand that you should start with your vision of a well lived life. So many people sort of start with the job and then try and squeeze their life into the margins of that job. And maybe for some people that, you know, want to get their 10,000 hours or want to become a chess grandmaster, their vision of a well-lived life is, you know, working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. But if we think with the vision of a well-lived life as the primary thought partner, the primary place to begin, you can think about how your work can support that vision. And I definitely believe in seasonality of work. And there will be seasons where maybe, you know, you're trying to get that film made or maybe you're trying to write that book or you're trying to, you know, close that next round of funding and you might have to work a little bit harder. Or maybe you're early in your career and you're really trying to cultivate some skills for yourself. But I hope those seasons of grinding are balanced with seasons of recharging and resting as well. Um, because, you know, as you talk about so often on the show, productivity is a reflection of our ability to to show up, to be present, to be able to be really entrenched in the moment. And we can only do that when we have the capacity to do so, when we are fulfilled in ways beyond just our professional accomplishments or what pats on the back we might get from our jobs. Okay, share time. I'm going to share, um, and I'm hoping you can help me. This is, in many ways, my goal of sharing this is to say that I know what you just said right there is true because I've experienced it, and it's no secret to people who are longtime listeners of the show that I spent a long time building a company called Creative Live that was acquired by a large public company called Fiverr, who's you know match made in heaven. People you know who were pursuing their passions and learning on creative life, photography, design, entrepreneurship could more easily make money on this platform. And it was great. And then I, after a year with the big public company, I was like, cool, uh, I bid you adieu. And my ex my belief, because there was a year between having the company acquired, which is a milestone moment for the entrepreneur and the team that did it, 
that this year or so while I was sort of making creative life successful along with, you know, all the other talented people that work there inside of this new company was somehow going to be recharging. And then, you know, I was going to be ready to do my next thing. And I was tired. I was tired. I was dead tired. And I, for the first time in my life, really deeply came to understand the term burnout. Mm. It was also painful because that was my identity and I wasn't actually building something right now. I had traded who I was as the human being for who I was, you know, either on the internet or within that the circle of the tens of millions of people who use Creative Live or whatever the circle was. And there was a rest period that was required for me to show up in a new chapter of my life that was way longer. It was way harder. And looking back, I was like, dang, I wish I had somehow nourished that side of myself prior to <laughs> basically being flat out on my back. And when I read your book, I couldn't help but think, God, I wish I had this. I wish I had this earlier. And you can say these words. Mm. And maybe even know these things casually, but to know them with a capital K mm. and to actually live, what does it mean to be something besides your work place or your work identity is entirely something different. And one of the things that I loved about the book, your book, is that you have given some actual advice. Mm. What are some of these pieces of advice that I should have taken that you would give to those who are thinking right now, like, oh God, I'm actually one of those people. Yeah. I am. I am so much my job. Sure, I'm a mother, or sure, I'm a, you know, a brother, or a cousin, or a husband, or wife, or whatever. But oh, man, I really like when work's going good, I feel good about myself. When it's not, I don't. I'm too tied up. Yeah. What are some what are some ways to diversify? our identities beyond work. Yeah. I mean, your story is so relatable and <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if everyone on who's listening right now has had a bout of the same thing, you know? And I think the great irony is that when we do drive ourselves to burn out, when we say, you know, uh, I'll tend to my sickness after I finish this last performance review or after I finish this last report that I have to put out, we tend to wind up in a place like you where we can't work at all. It's not, yeah. if we're just even thinking from a productivity lens, it's not a formula for sustained productivity, you know, not to mention the other consequences of letting your job take up all of your life. The big thing that I think people ought to recognize is that our identities, our sources of meaning, they're, they're sort of like plants. They require time and energy to grow. And one of the risks of living such a work-centric existence is that when you're off work, you often don't have the energy to do anything else. That's why so many people come home and then, you know, flip on Netflix and turn on turn off their brain for a few hours and then go to sleep and then rinse and repeat. You know, the days become indistinguishable from one another. And so the antidote to that is to carve out space where work is not an option. You know, one of the benefits of, say, going for a run or going to a yoga class or going to church on Sunday is that 
it is a structural barrier to continuing to work. And then within that space that you create, you can find meaning because we only are able to find meaning when we give it our attention. You're only able to cultivate that identity as a good friend or a good brother or as a good parent through parenting or having that weekly tennis match that you go to with your brother or having a good phone conversation with your best friend. I think that's the part that often gets missed is it's not just about working less for the sake of, you know, adhering to some work-life balance mantra that you've set on January 1st each year. It's on the other side of prioritizing work is the ability to prioritize other things that matter to you in your life. I will say that that, you know, again, that that is what was the Band-Aid. That was what was the, not the Band-Aid, the cure for my burnout once I was able to sort of get off the couch. And I, I wasn't like literally sitting on the couch, but I just was sort of moving through life in a way that just felt disconnected from my sort of my soul a little bit. I was like wandering just a little bit. And it was action. It was like action and actively pursuing leisure. Mm. Things like hiking, like golf, like um, we got a puppy. So I was able to invest time and energy into another critter. Like th there were things that got me moving and required attention that was not a work attention that helped me see it's sort of like that was the only way to create contrast. And when I started to see it, I was like, wow, I'm investing. This is an active process. Mm. Like the default, I, I recognize that I just didn't, I defaulted to work historically. Mm -hmm. And when that has been a default for anyone who's listening or watching, I was shocked at how much active time I had to, to spend planning leisure things that were not work. And then here's the cool part hmm. because it was difficult, but once I started it, it felt fantastic. So I was motivated to do it. And I've shared on the show, like then the, you know, combine the end of that, my process around, you know, creative live being acquired time kind of with the pandemic a little bit. So I, you know, I was able to start golfing and it was a way for me to spend time with my male friends outside mm -hmm. of work, outside and outside of work and outside. And mm -hmm. this active, like something else to focus on, even if it was a stupid little white ball ended up bringing me a lot of harmony and joy and mostly an awareness. So yeah. what else would you, in addition to this sort of this active form of leisure, you talk what sounds like a controversial thing to an entrepreneur, find opportunities to trade money for time. Yeah, I think this one is maybe a little counterintuitive, especially mm -hmm. for people in the U.S. who have seen how working more or spending more time on things can potentially lead to more money. I want to harp back on something you just said, though, about okay. the stupid white ball, which is, you know, I was talking to a psychologist for the book, and she sees a lot of sort of type A, overachiever, really driven, ambitious folks. And she gives them this advice to like, you know, if you want to cultivate other sources of meaning, you have to do things other than work. And 
her patients say, okay, great, I'm going to sign up for an Ironman. Or, okay, great, I'm going to read 52 books this year. You know, And there's this way that we sort of quantify our leisure that turns even our off-the-clock free time into more ways of working. And I think one of the beauties of doing something like playing golf or you know, dancing or trying to learn the guitar without trying to be a rock star is these forms of play are sort of the opposite. They are grounded not in any sort of future achievement, but just in the present experience of you know, walking around with some of your buddies and hitting around a little white ball. Um, and so even though we tend to sort of like trivialize these things of being like, oh, is the antidote to work just to like take up knitting? Like maybe not, but maybe it is. Maybe it's just finding something for you to do for you to figure out who you are when you're not being productive. Um, when it comes to you know trading your time for money, there's been a lot of great research out of Harvard on on this topic. And you know, one of the ways that we tend to reward ourselves for being successful in the United States is by working more. <laughs> you know, often the reward you get for your company being acquired or achieving the next promotion that you want is the demand on your time to work more and more. And what the researchers have found is that rather than trading that marginal dollar that you might make, you can use that dollar and instead trade it for free time. So I have a, a guy that I profile in the book who is a Wall Street banker. And one of the things that he does is he gets a babysitter every week just so him and his wife can go on a walk. And on one hand, it's like, do you have to be so intentional about going on a walk and spending some unstructured time with your wife that you have to, you know, calendar it out and get a babysitter. But on the other hand, it's investments like that that actually lead to more happiness, that actually lead to our ability to continue to be productive. You know, I think a lot of us have internalized this idea that the more time we spend working will necessarily lead to better work. And that's just not the case. You know, maybe it's the case a little bit more in an industrial economy when, you know, you're making widgets on the assembly line or there's like a more direct relationship between hours put in and the quality of your work. But in a knowledge economy where the coin of the realm is ideas and your ability to be creative and your ability to innovate, our minds need the space for ideas to bounce off of each other. Our minds need the space to synthesize all of the inputs that we're taking on on a day-to-day -day basis. And I'm sure you found this as you know a CEO and leading a company. When your days are just meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting, there's very little room for you to come up with the actual million-dollar ideas that might change the course of the company. But we have done that to ourselves. It's like our minds are these like Google Google Calendar modules that just stack, 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 stack without any space to breathe. Mm. Yeah, you know, there's that's the saying. It's like the most successful people's calendars aren't empty because they are wealthy or successful. They are successful or wealthy because their calendars are empty. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's just like the time and space to process and think. And I'm thinking right now about a lovely man that I know who is probably in his seventies and he's the 
CEO of a company. It's in the manufacturing space. And I think about he op- how he operates and it's so slow and mm-hmm. deliberate. And we think in our culture that this is just, oh gosh, you know, you could make so much more money or so much more product or so much more. It's just this productivity hamster wheel. And yeah, I think of how much he knows that what he's doing is making art when he's working and it allows him to live a very rich and by rich, I mean, deep and meaningful life outside of work because he has this healthy relationship with his pace and his body clock and his calendar and so many of these other things. And, Mm -hmm. and yet, and I will say that he's European Mm -hmm. um, and you have on a few occasions in this interview already said we in the United States, in the United States, here in the U.S., blah, blah. So what is it? What are we, what are we getting wrong? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, there's a you few. Know, my example is this European guy, and you've qualified it three or four times already. What's, what is wrong with how we're doing it? Yeah, I think there's a few things that make the United States distinct. One, if you just look at our country's history, you know, the Protestant work ethic and capitalism were sort of the two strands that entwined to form our country's DNA. You know, I think there's structural elements, like, for example, the fact that we tie healthcare to work here. You know, part of the reason why our relationship to work is so fraught is because the consequences of losing work are so dire. But the major one that I harp on in the book is the sort of subjective value that Americans give to their jobs. You know, we live in a culture that really treats CEOs as celebrities and plasters always do what you love on the walls of our co-working space. And, you know, if you look at the data, some of the greatest increases in work time in the past 40 years come from the highest earners. And there's an irony in that, you know, for the majority of the history of the world, the more wealth you had, the less you worked because you could afford not to. This is true on sort of a country level and on an individual level. And so in the 1970s, the average American and the average German and the average French worker all worked roughly the same amount of hours. And now the average American works 30% more than the average German. And, you know, if you look at this sort of precipitous decline of some of our peer nations and the relative flat line of the United States, it's college educated men. Those are the folks who are making up the difference, who are working so much because of, you know, some based on need and some based on just the subjective value where that's where they get validation. That's where they get community. That's where they feel like they can cultivate a sense of self-worth and, you know, lots of the consequences are being shown, you know, from the loneliness epidemic to, you know, people at home having to foot the bill. It's a strategy that is going and already has driven an entire country towards that burnout state that you were just describing. I think it would be helpful if we talk for a second about this loneliness epidemic, that it is officially an, an epidemic, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, and, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that in case someone who's listening or watching doesn't doesn't know what what is that about? Yeah, I mean, there's a you know the U.S. Surgeon General is this guy named Vivek Murthy, 
and he's made it a big focus of of his time in office to ring the alarm on the state of loneliness in the United States. Um, the amount of people who don't feel like they have any friends, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, is astronomically high. And one of the main reasons that that Dr. Murthy cites is the culture of, of work centricity. You know, people don't necessarily have the time or the infrastructure to be cultivating these relationships. And it's one of my big fears as we transition to a more kind of remote and hybrid world is how are people going to continue to cultivate community? For better or for worse, the, the office has been a major social hub for lots of people and particularly men. And what is going to come of this age where we're just going to, to Zoom from, from meeting to meeting? I'm not sure. You know, I guess I'll, I'll throw the question back to you. Like, when did you feel most lonely in your entrepreneurial journey? Uh, it was a pretty, pretty constant. And it was especially stark going from a world of, you know, my, my, <clears throat> a piece of my identity as a photographer, which was a very collaborative social, you know, I would go from one, you know, one brand one week, and then two weeks later, you're in a different country with another brand working on an ad campaign. It was very collaborative, very social. People who showed up for work were very, very happy. Most of the, whether that was the talent or the, the uh, client or the agency, or whoever's, you know, hiring this big creative sort of hairball, everyone was pretty excited about what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And when I <clears throat> decided to, after Creative Live was up and, you know, we, I, I spent a lot, disproportionate amount of time launching it and then hired some professional folks to come run it. These were, you know, folks, we partnered with some venture capital firms and that industry to finance the growth of the business. And when I moved from this sort of maker mode into what is commonly called manager mode, where your calendar starts to look like just a bunch of meetings. And even if you are, you know, making decisions in those meetings and if your opinion, um, if you get to share your opinion, the way you think with others and to either inspire them or drive change or drive action, it did, it suddenly became a very, very lonely, uh, what I would consider a lonely, uh, place. And, it occurred to me that that is very much like what most of most more traditional employment looked like. And now as soon as I like locked into that, I was like, oh, wow. But then I go back to the earliest days as a photographer, not the part where it was, you know, success and, you know, all these global ad campaigns. It was sleeping in a car, hmm. you know, waiting for the event to start so I could sneak into the venue because I didn't have an actual credential. So it was it was very lonely. I would sneak into the dark room at the local community college, break in. Like I would have like literally know how to open the window so I could use their facilities to develop my film because I didn't have any money. Yeah. That was lonely. So at no time in, or in for, for no endurance of time was I not aware of this sort of, I don't know, the scepter of, wow, this is a, largely a solo journey yeah yeah and, i mean and, it reminds yeah, me know. of the the path of this washi banker that I, I mentioned a little bit earlier so 
he represents the furthest end of the spectrum of just valuing what the market values. So he, you know, was a valedictorian of his high school, went to a top college in at his Ivy League university. He said, what is the job that pays me the most? And, you know, went to Wall Street and started working for BlackRock, this giant asset management firm. Mm-hmm. And at BlackRock, he said, okay, what are the metrics of success here? Okay, it's like title and, and compensation. And so he did what he had to do to rise up the ranks and became the youngest ever managing director at BlackRock. And then he got to the top and he realized, wait, like I'm climbing a ladder that I don't actually want to be on. I'm, I'm trying to win a game that I don't actually want to be playing. And he realized that, you know, the perch from the top, maybe similar to when you were in in manager mode, is not all that it was cracked up to be for him. And I think, you know, he ended up quitting his job. It's many ways the most cliche story in the book. Moves to California, (laughs) becomes a surfer, you know, becomes a solopreneur (laughs) and is kind of doing his own thing. But I think, you know, his name is Kay. His, His story represents sort of, the the spectrum that we have on one hand just valuing what the market values thinking about what might pay you the most and letting that dictate your decisions on the other hand you get the situation where maybe you're an artist but you're so preoccupied by how you're going to make rent that you can't actually focus on your art or maybe you are really passionate about this very esoteric topic and you take on a lot of debt to go to graduate school but only then realize that you know the degree that you pursued might not actually lead to job prospects on the other end. And so, you know, I think the key is thinking about what you value, thinking about what the market values, and trying to find something at their intersection. Because I think there are traps that exist at both ends of the spectrum. And on one hand, all of the sort of follow your passion and figure it out later talk can drive people to states of lots of anxiety and uh, you know follow money or follow status is ultimately just a, a rat race where you can chase carrots your entire life and never feel full and so I think the key is thinking about those two things in concert how can you hold what the world cares about in one hand what you care about in the other hand and think about trying to marry them through your career yeah, there's a line in the book somewhere that stood out to me, which it, I have said something similar. And this is the reason just like, wow, yeah, this is the same. I've said, if you don't write your own script, the world will write it for you. And mm-hmm. in the book, you said, if you don't define what you want your relationship to work to be, your employer will be happily, will ha- will happily do it for you. And so if the punchline that we take away from that is we need to define what we want our relationship to work to be, what are some active practices that you would recommend for someone who is like, I think we clearly have the attention of our listeners right now. They're like, there's too many people right now saying, oh shit, totally. they have, they have me figured out. And which is again, why your book I feel like is so prescient. Like what, give us some tactics on how do we define what we want our relationship to work to be. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just tell the story of the title quickly, which is, you know, the good enough job. It's an allusion to this theory that was devised by this British pediatrician named Donald Winnicott in like the mid 20th century. 
And Winnicott was observing this growing idolization of parenting, how these parents wanted to shield their kid from experiencing any harm. And then when their kid inevitably felt sad or frustrated or angry, the parent took it extremely personally, internalized their kid's emotions. And Winnicott proposed an alternative that he thought would benefit both the kid and the parent. And he called it good enough parenting or the good enough mother. And what he said was, you know, if you're able to value sufficiency as opposed to perfection, the kid can learn how to self-soothe. They can learn how to deal with some of their own negative emotions. And the parent won't lose their identity and the identity of their kids. And so when you think about, you know, defining uh, a good enough job or a more intentional relationship to work, I want you to keep Winnicott's wisdom in mind. You know, my favorite thing about it is the the framework is subjective. You know, you get to define what your good enough job is. Maybe it is, you know, making a certain amount of money or having a certain job title or working in a certain industry, or maybe it's getting off work at a certain time so that you can show up to every single one of your kids' soccer games or so that you can take the time to, you know, get involved in that political campaign that you wanted to get involved with. But whatever your definition of good enough is, I hope that you recognize when you find it. Because I think what keeps people from having a more healthy relationship to work is just this desire for for more, more, more. Sometimes that manifests in the form of, you know, your boss says jump and you say how high, you know, just always trying to please the people in the office. Sometimes it comes in the form of using money as sort of the barometer for your worth in this world and just thinking more and more and more and more and more. You know, David Foster Wallace has this great line about how he says, there's no such thing as not worshiping. We all worship. The only choice we have is what to worship because whatever you end up worshiping will end up eating you alive. You know, worship beauty and you'll think that you're never beautiful enough. Worship money and you'll think you'll never have enough money. And I think that's the trap that so many people fall into. They don't have a conception of what enough is. And so they default to a state of more and more and more, which drives them crazy in the end. It's so true. This sounds like, um, I mean, I'm just flooded with a, you know, a history of guests here. Ramit Sethi, a dear friend who's in a personal finance university, is like, if you do not define it, I don't know anyone who's a millionaire doesn't want to be a billionaire or a billionaire who doesn't want to be a decabillionaire and this, this sort of like hamster wheel that we've put ourselves on. Now let's, um, let's zoom out and ask some very practical questions, right? What does this actually look like? Cause we could say like, Oh, define for yourself, but like, how do you, put yourself in a position to listen to your heart, to Mm. really listen, because there's so much noise and so many inputs, whether it's our parents, our grandparents, our daughters, our career counselors, there's just so much noise. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's get real practical. Like how, what does the research show when you were interviewing people, you know, in the journalism for the book, like what were some 
successful ways that people could get still enough to hear themselves think or hear their heart. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think that is a key first step, which is creating the space in your life to be able to listen to yourself. You know, I think so often when we're at states of transition, we want to just interrogate everyone around us and try and find answers from other people's models. But when we're doing that in the career sense, we're comparing our insides to other people's outsides. It's really easy to look around and think, oh, they've got it all figured out or to be so close to your job that you can't actually think about what your relationship to it should be or be intentional about your relationship. You just get reactive. And I think that's why so many people through an experience like taking a sabbatical or through traveling to a different country are able to finally get perspective on their own life. You know, like Ramit has this great line about like, define what your rich life looks like and then go from there. You know, it's similar in the works realm. It's like, unless you have a vision for what your sort of rich work life looks like, you're never going to feel satisfied. I think one common thread of the the people I talk to is that a lot of people that were able to like make a change or to find a more healthy relationship to work were able to find models of people doing it in a different way. Um, I have this friend, Paul, who says, you have to find the others, you know, and it's hard because right now as a society, we exalt and revere the people who have, you know, worked their way up the ladder or who have done it a certain way. But that might not be your way. If you think about like what your vision for a rich work life looks like, maybe there is, you know, that person out there that only works 30 hours a week and, you know, takes Fridays off to spend time with their kids. Maybe there is that person out there that does work a very taxing corporate job, but has very clear boundaries where they have expectations of when they are on and off the clock. Maybe there is that person out there that did, you know, work as a corporate lawyer or a doctor and then had the courage to do something else that felt more in line with their heart. I think surrounding yourself by those people or just chatting with them and figuring out that those other ways of doing things are is possible is a great way to expand your imagination because right now we sort of are so limited in the way that we think of what it means to be successful you know when we when we talk about whether someone was successful we don't mean are they healthy or are they happy we mean did they make a lot of money and i think you know for the pandemic lots of people were able to see that you know this thing that i thought was going to make me happy is not actually delivering that mm-hmm. and maybe i need to think about work in a new light mm. so so valuable this thought process this journey that you've taken us on uh i got to call the book out again the good enough job um you end the book interestingly with a conversation that is a world with less work. Mm. What's your vision for the future? Yeah, I think, you know, there are, there are rumblings of this future vision out there. Um, you know, and similar to how, you know, the future is here, just not evenly distributed. I think there are both companies and countries and individuals who are a little bit more evolved than Americans are on the sort of work journey. Um, 
Yeah. In the end of the book, I, I talk about sort of three layers of potential interventions. I talk about interventions at kind of the government or the policy level, interventions at the company or kind of manager level, and interventions at the individual level. And I think, you know, one of the common tropes when you think about things like work-life balance is that like the onus should fall on the individual. You know, it's just up to you to draw better boundaries or practice self-care. But I actually think when it comes to healthier, more sustainable approaches to work, a lot of that responsibility falls on the company, falls on managers who are able to create systems of accountability so that when people are on vacation, they don't have to be on the clock. We're able to communicate quick, clearly about what expectations they have around communication and hire enough people so that there's enough people to get the work done. I'm really inspired by companies that do things like have mandatory minimum vacations or bosses that really model the type of culture that they want to create. Um, when you think about the sort of company, I mean, country or like policy level, I think it really starts with decoupling our basic human needs from our employment. You know, I talked a little bit about healthcare earlier. Lots of people in the United States are here on visas that tie their ability to stay in this country to their ability to continue working. I think what we're seeing with a lot of these sort of four-day workweek experiments and different ways of thinking about things is that working less at an institutional level does not necessarily come at the expense of being able to be productive or produce quality work. Um, but I think there are limits to the kind of structural interventions as well. Like one example I think about a lot is in Japan, they have one of the most progressive parental leave policies in, in the world, especially for fathers. They're entitled to up to a year of, of paid time off. And the last data that I looked at said that only 5% a, fault, a paltry 5% of Japanese fathers took the time that they were allotted. And so it points to sort of these dual needs. You need both like the structures in place to be able to design a, a system that doesn't keep work at the center, and you need the cultural will to do so. And I think that's where we're starting to see a little bit of the tides change when it comes to the sort of hustle culture that has gotten a lot of pushback in the few last few years or people who are being uh, more transparent about the fact that they're burned out or people that are trying to design different ways of working or take a sabbatical or trying to take more non-traditional path to employment. And that's where I see a lot of encouragement. I think on one hand, you get the people that are sort of like anti-work or anti-capitalist. And I, I don't think that's the answer. You know, we live in a material world and we have to pay rent. But I am really inspired by people who are sort of returning to those first principles and thinking, okay, what do I need and how can my work support my vision for a beautiful life? Speaking of inspiration, I'm very inspired by you and your work. I want to say thank you so much for writing a very, very timely book, not just for me, but I feel like for so many people. Um, again, the book is The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. Uh, Simone, you have been a absolute treat to have on the show. Let's just do a little housekeeping. Where do we learn more? Aside from getting the book, 
uh, which comes out, you know, we're going to try and drop this episode in the, in, as soon as possible to time it with your launch. So it's available everywhere books are sold. Um, where else would you steer people to learn a little bit more if this crafting the living and the life that we want for ourselves is important, which I can't think of how many times I've said that on the show. Um, where else would you steer us? Yeah, I think, you know, the best place to go is just the good enough job.com. Um, and, and beyond the book, I just hope that this spurs a conversation, you know, that's what helped me in my early days of thinking about my career was just talking to people about it and removing the sort of taboo for, of breaking from the script. And so, yeah, uh, you know, you can find me on social. I'm always happy to, to chat about these things. And I hope that, you know, if you just take one thing away from this conversation, it's that you have more autonomy and agency than you might think. Um, and so hopefully you can use it in a way that aligns how you spend your time with your values. Uh, the book has really helped me. Uh, I, I will say that as someone who felt very in control of their life, their career, it was a strange feeling to feel burned out and to then have reclaimed that. Um, it feels like uh, it's sort of like a rebirth and I've got so much new juice and it really did. It, it required time. It required effort. This is not a natural thing, especially when with all the conditioning that we've had. Um, thank you for writing a very important book and for all your research and work on the topic. Um, until next time, from uh, Simone and myself here on the uh, Chase Jarvis Live Show, thanks to everybody who tunes in. And until next time, we bid you adieu. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community. All of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive, positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing this show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. Mm -hmm.